Well, hey there, friends. I want to welcome all of you across the network as we wrap up our not-so-average Joe's conversation. It's been a really good journey, and whether you've been here for the whole thing or maybe just dropping in today, I'm glad you're here. All of the conversations are available online, but they're also all rooted in a very hopeful reality that we find in Romans 8:28. It simply says that God seeks to work all things for the good of those who love him. That's wonderful, that is hopeful, we can lay hold of that so that no matter what we experience, whether it's expected or unexpected, whether it feels like an opportunity or a challenge, or whether it's something that is our fault or the fault of somebody else, God is always seeking to work all of it for good for those who love him. And so far, we've looked at four Joes, not-so-average Joes out of Scripture. We've got one more. We're looking at all of them so that we know how to live a not-so-average life ourselves. So let's just go back and kind of review. We started by looking at Joseph in the Old Testament. And from him, we saw that trust is the fruit of a relationship in which we know we're loved. In week two, we jumped into the life of Jonah, and we saw that God uses our brokenness to lead us back to him. Week three, we leaned into the story of Job to understand that faith is based in trust, not circumstances. And last week, we looked at a king in the Old Testament by the name of Joash, where we understood that whenever we fail, whenever we fall short, whenever we sin, God is more disappointed for us than in us. Each of these conversations are positioning us to know how to live a not-so-average life ourselves. So we're actually going to shift gears today. We're going to skip ahead a little bit into the New Testament to find our not-so-average Joe, who is actually somebody who allowed God to work in their life at deeper and deeper levels, not perfectly, but consistently. In fact, the, what was significant about them is that they were positioned, because they were submitted to God, positioned to let God work an incredible amount of good out of their life in multiple circumstances. They were somebody who, who were positioned to allow God to invest in others' lives so that Romans 8.28 could be realized in the lives of others. It was a significant ripple. Because they invested in others, God could work Romans 8.28 out in those lives. Now, the person we're talking about, his name is Joseph. Now again, we're not talking about Old Testament Joseph. We already looked at him. We're talking about Joseph in the New Testament. But we're not talking about Joseph who was married to Mary, which makes him the earthly father of Jesus. Not that Joseph. We're talking about Joseph who invested in Saul, who became Paul and lived a not-so-average life himself. So we're talking about a Joseph who's better known as Barabbas. Excuse me, not Barabbas. That's a whole other guy. <laughs> Barnabas. I think I would get it right by this point. Barnabas, Barnabas was Joseph. He became Barnabas. He invested in a guy named Saul who became Paul. And it can feel like, who's on first? What names are we talking about? What's with the deal with Saul to Paul and Joseph to Barnabas? Let me just frame it for you. And you can write this down if you want somewhere in your notes. You don't have to. I just want you to understand a reality that Saul was a guy who was an Israelite and a Roman. So he, was, he had an identity within the people of God, but he also had the rights of a citizen of Rome. He was also somebody who was studied and, and educated as a Pharisee, a, a religious leader. Now, Saul will eventually be given a new name, Paul, as he lives a not-so-average Joe life. But his journey there is a little unique in that he kind of has a downward spiral for a period of time. He has this turning point moment, and then he's positioned to live into a not-so-average life. 
but it's a journey. It's a unique one that we can learn from. In fact, he kind of starts out um, like Joash from last week. He starts out kind of good, doing some things right for God, studying as a religious leader and influencer, but then he takes a turn and he lives a not-so or below-average life. Uh, he, he spirals down almost uh, a bit like Jonah, where he's deciding for himself what should and shouldn't be, deciding for himself what God should and shouldn't be doing, to the point that he ends up persecuting the people who were following Jesus in what was called the way at that point. And he ends up being involved in overseeing the death of a man named Stephen. And Stephen is the first Christian martyr. Saul stood over the process as Stephen was stoned to death for being a follower of Jesus. Out of that dynamic, Saul actually gets some official paperwork to head to a place called Damascus. And on his way to Damascus, he's intending to do a lot more harm to this group called the Way, he encounters Jesus. Jesus shows up, knocks him to the ground. He says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is this radical moment by which Saul gets up. He can't speak. He can't see. He heads into Damascus until a man by the name of Ananias is sent by God who prays over him. And this becomes the conversion moment for Saul where he steps into relationship with Jesus. And he's transformed. He even begins to preach boldly in the name of Jesus. But he actually encounters some threats to his life. And so he actually takes off and he heads to Arabia for three years. Then he eventually comes back to Damascus before he heads to Jerusalem. But when he gets to Jerusalem, he finds more trouble. He has more hardship. It's almost a bit like Joseph in the Old Testament and even Job in the Old Testament where there's this problem, there's a crisis, there's, there's danger. But even in faithfulness and in that complexity, out of the faithfulness as a not-so-average Joe, God continues to work and move out of the faithfulness, even in the complexity. But he ends up taking off and heading to a place called Tarsus, where he's there for about nine years. Then he's recruited to help out with a ministry in a place called Antioch for, for about one year. And what ends up happening in this journey of Saul becoming Paul Scripture records three trips or missionary journeys by which, by which Paul is out there talking about Jesus and leading people to the Lord and planting churches. He writes 13 books, will become books of the Bible in letters to churches, and he will be martyred, which means he dies for his faith. He is killed because he is this person who says he follows Jesus. That is the journey of a not-so-average Joe named Paul, who used to be Saul. But I'm going to tell you, that's not our not-so-average Joe today. (laughs) As I already said, our Joe is Joseph, also known as Barnabas. And he intersects the story right here. He is someone who positions himself to invest in the life of someone else so that they can experience the not-so-average life on their own. He actually positions himself to say, Paul, stand on my shoulders. Paul, leverage my relationships for your relationships. Paul, leverage my reputation for your reputation. And because of Barnabas' investment, Paul's not-so-average life becomes what it actually does. See, see Barnabas was someone who realized that not-so-average living was ultimately about facilitating not-so-average living in other people. He knew it wasn't just about him. 
which makes him a great example and a great space for us to land this not-so-average Joe journey. Because the reality is living a not-so-average life is never just about us. Living a not-so-average life is never just about us. It's not, it's not simply about you and me. There is always a space of, of benefit or something more as it creates a space for others to live a not-so-average life. We can do not-so-average stuff, but it should position others to do not-so-average stuff themselves. And that's what Barnabas does. In fact, if you have a Bible, I want to invite you to grab it and turn to Acts. The book of Acts chapter 4 is where we're going to start. We're going to jump around in Acts a bit, but get to Acts chapter 4. Because we're, here's where, that's where we're introduced to Barnabas. And when we're introduced to him, he's described as someone who sells a property that he owns and gives it to the leaders of the church in Jerusalem for the work of the church. This is where we find Barnabas in the journey. This is Acts chapter 4, starting at verse 36 into verse 37. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, sold a field he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. Now, based on when this is happening, it's pretty clear that Barnabas was an early believer and follower of Jesus. He, he would become a very important and influential leader in the early church, but it's clear he leaned in to following Jesus very early on in this process. And from these verses, we know a couple things. One, he is a Levite by birth. Now, the tribe of Levi, the Levites, in the Old Testament, in early Israel, they were established as the priests, and they would facilitate everything within the temple process of worship. So his lineage comes from the tribe of Levi. We also know something else. He's a resident of Cyprus, which is really helpful in understanding how he could have property to sell and give to the church. Because in the Old Testament, both in Numbers and Deuteronomy, the Levites were told and prohibited from owning property in Israel. But he owned property in Cyprus, which he sells and gives to the work of the church. Now, this investment, this action is very significant. It points to the first not-so-average Joe attribute that we see in the life of Barnabas. And that is simply that not-so-average Joes see what can be. Not-so-average Joes see what can be. Not just what was or has been or even what is. They see what can be. They see it, and they sacrifice for it. In fact, as a not-so-average Joe, Barnabas is, is probably one of the most quietly influential leaders in the Christian church in this time. And if you want to wonder why, like how is that possible, it is rooted in this reality. He saw what could be when many people couldn't or wouldn't. And not-so-average Joes see what can be, and they see it early enough that they're positioned to facilitate the possibility being brought to reality. Not-so-average Joes see what can be. And this, this can happen in big and small ways. It can happen in big ways like changing the trajectory of someone's entire life journey, or it can happen in a small way like an innovation or invention. In fact, just this week, my son Joshua introduced me to a man named Louis Fry Richardson. Anybody know him? Know who he is? I had no clue. <laughs> he was a mathematician and meteorologist who developed a mathematical process for forecasting the weather. It's fascinating. It's incredibly interesting. In fact, he was someone who saw what was but also saw what could be. And so in 1922, he published Weather Prediction by Numerical Process. It was math 
to predict the weather. It was groundbreaking. It was cutting edge. It was impressive. The problem was that it would take 64 mathematicians working nonstop for six months to complete the mathematical equations for the weather the next day. So a very highly accurate and predictive process came six months too late. In fact, he himself said this. He said, look, it would take 60,000 people working with slide rulers to predict tomorrow's weather. The, the math requirement made it not feasible. He needed technology to advance. And so in the early 1950s, with the introduction of computers, he got to see his theory, his math began to be put into practice and used towards forecasting and predicting in meteorology. And it's become a foundation in forecasting and meteorology today. It's fascinating. <laughs> see, lots of innovations come from people who see what can be, not just what is. They see what can be, even if it's not quite attainable yet, even if it's going to take a journey to get there. And not so average Joes see what can be, and Barnabas did that for Paul. He saw what could be when many others wouldn't or couldn't. Now, I just want to make an acknowledgement. It is highly likely that I'm going to go from Saul to Paul to Paul to Saul back and forth. I'm not talking about two people. I'm talking about one. Saul and Paul, same dude. I'm going to be pretty good about Barnabas unless I say Barabbas, which is the only time I've done that this whole weekend. I'm not going to say Joseph very often. I am going to say Barnabas. So, whether I'm saying Paul or Saul, I'm talking about the same guy. And it was Barnabas who saw the value of Paul when others could not, when others wouldn't. I saw him as a diamond in the rough. But he didn't stop there. See, after, after Paul is, meets Jesus on the road to Damascus, he's knocked to the ground, has that whole experience. He ends up going to Damascus. He ends up in Arabia. You can go to Galatians 1 and find out that whole deal, being there for three years. Goes back to Damascus, then to Jerusalem. But when he goes to Jerusalem, he tries to introduce himself to the believers in Jerusalem but they're afraid of him. That's how awful his persecution had been. They were suspicious as whether or not he was a believer at all in the first place. Let's just jump over to Acts chapter 9. If you're in your own Bible, or you can look up here. Acts chapter 9, verse 26. When he, Saul, came to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him, not believing that he really was a disciple. They, they thought he was pretending to be a believer, which is totally understandable, especially when you ask the question, where has he been for three years? If he had chosen to follow Jesus, why hadn't he come to Jerusalem and introduced himself and reported to the leadership in the Jerusalem church? That was their headquarters. That was their hub. Where has he been? What is the deal? I believe they had some suspicion that this whole thing was some ploy to infiltrate the church to do even greater harm. So Paul's ministry was actually stalling out at this point. But enter stage right, Barnabas. See, without Barnabas, it is highly likely that Paul's life could have ended in obscurity, which would have had huge implications, even for us today. 13 books of the Bible, churches planted out of his mission trips, all kinds of implications had Barnabas not been willing to invest in Paul. And the reality is, I think there's a lot of people out there, a lot of people waiting to live into the greater purpose God has for them if it just someone would help them do it. And that's exactly what Barnabas does for Paul. Take a look at this. Verse 27. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles. He told them how Saul on his journey had seen the Lord and that the Lord had spoken to him 
and how in Damascus he had preached fearlessly in the name of Jesus. Just hold there for a moment because if we did jump to Galatians 1, we would see that Paul actually ends up spending 15 days in Jerusalem. And he says he only interacts with Peter and James, the brother of Jesus. But this is where Barnabas intersects. Barnabas speaks to Peter and to James and vouches for Paul. He he says his transformation is legitimate. He experienced and encountered Jesus on the road to Damascus. Jesus spoke to him. He responded. He became bold and fearless in preaching in the name of Jesus in Damascus. And because of Barnabas being willing to vouch for Paul, Peter and James and the rest of the leadership of the church embraced the fact that this former enemy was now transformed. Without Barnabas, it's a different scenario. Here's what ends up happening, verse 28. So Saul stayed with them and moved about freely in Jerusalem, speaking boldly in the name of the Lord. Verse 29, he talked and debated with the Hellenistic Jews. And the Hellenistic Jews are Jews who had embraced Greek language and Greek culture. And those folks, they tried to kill Paul. Again, even in faithfulness, we can experience trouble, but God works all things for the good of those who love him. So verse 30, when the believers learned of this, same believers that were afraid of him before, they took him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. So we get to verse 31, the church throughout the region enjoyed peace and strength and they increased in numbers. Okay, here's the thing. It is really hard to change a reputation. It's really hard. And, and Paul had a horrible reputation, especially with the Christians because he had killed them. But it was Barnabas who was willing to be a bridge between Paul and the others so that the fullness of a not-so-average life could be realized. And I'm going to tell you, new believers, people who choose to step into a relationship with Jesus, especially those with complicated reputations, need a Barnabas who's willing to step alongside and inspire them and encourage them to invite them into space for their full potential and to intercede and pray for them They need a Barnabas. Being a Barnabas to others actually positions people to live into the fullness of their identity in Jesus and not let that be diminished. To step fully into who they are when they make a decision to step from death to life in Jesus Christ. It can be risky because it doesn't always work out. People make their own choices. But I'm going to tell you, it is worth the risk. And if you are a follower of Jesus, sooner or later, full obedience to God will require and involve risk. Sooner or later, eventually, true and full obedience to God will involve risk. It involves a step of faith. It will involve an element of something we hope for, something not yet seen, but that we take a step and risk. And not so average Joe's risk to make a difference for God in the lives of other people. And as uncomfortable as that may sound or feel, I'm going to tell you something. Our faith does not grow in spaces of certainty. My faith and your faith, it doesn't grow in a space of certainty. It grows in a space of uncertainty. It grows in a space where we step in trust, where we step by faith, where we step in an element of appropriate risk. And sooner or later, full obedience to God will involve risk, uncertain steps of faith. And so a not-so-average Joe named Barnabas was a good man, a generous man, who was willing to risk because of that He's involved in changing the entire trajectory of a man named Saul who becomes Paul with an incredible and measurable ripple for the kingdom of God. Sometimes it just takes one. 
You know, in the narrative at this point, Saul has gone to Tarsus. He'll be there for like nine years. And in that time period, a ministry breaks out in a place called Antioch. It's a ministry to Gentiles, non-Jews. And so the leadership of the Jerusalem church identifies Barnabas and send him to that space to investigate this ministry, see if it's on the up and up, see if it's good to go or not. So Barnabas goes, and then we're going to jump over to Acts chapter 11 and pick up the journey there. I'm moving to verse 23. So when he, Barnabas, arrived and saw what the grace of God had done, he was glad and encouraged. He, he was glad and he encouraged them all to remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. Verse 24, he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith, and a great number of people were brought to the Lord. That's a wonderful statement about him. Powerful. That's why he's not so average. Verse 25, then Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for who? Saul. He went, to, he went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he found him, he brought him to Antioch for a whole year. Barnabas and Saul met with the church and taught a great number of people. The disciples were called Christians first at Antioch. So here's this whole crazy thing. Barnabas is sent to investigate a ministry that he becomes leader of, and then he goes to Tarsus and finds the dude that everybody was suspicious of and invites him back in to be his assistant in ministering for a year and seeing incredible life change along the journey. Not so average Joes see what can be, and they risk to see it realized. That may feel exceptional. You may think, well, that's Barnabas. and He can do that stuff. I could never do that stuff. Sean, I just can't do that. Listen, the secret to Barnabas being a not-so-average Joe, and even Paul, is found in verse 24 of what we just read. Holy Spirit and faith. Holy Spirit is a source of power, source of wisdom, the source of life change, in fact, let me just pause for a moment. I want to have a conversation about Holy Spirit. Not so much theological as maybe more grammatical. You can put this in the box in your note guide or not. I don't care. I want you to just understand this concept. The reality is that God is three in one. He is a singular deity who has an expression, he expresses himself in three. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. He is three in one. It's the Trinity. One expressed in three. And the three are in unique expressions themselves. The Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. This is the reality of the God we serve, the three-in-one, the Trinity. It's all through Scripture. It's clear that this is the God we serve. Now, the reality is, this is a title, but Father, Son, Holy Spirit have names. And so, God the Father is known as Jehovah, Yahweh, Jehovah Jireh, Jehovah Nissi, Jehovah Rapha, El Shaddai, Adonai, he has lots of names that he's given so that we could understand who he is. The Son has a name. It's Jesus. It's the only name by which we're saved. The name of Jesus is power. But he's also known as King of Kings and Lord of Lords, Morning Star, Man of Sorrows, Lion of Judah. The Son has a name. His name is Jesus. The Holy Spirit's name is Holy Spirit. Comforter, paraclete, guide, counsel. The reason I share this is to clarify something. You often hear us as leaders talk about Holy Spirit as Holy Spirit, not just simply saying the Holy Spirit. That's actually more common in many churches to say the Holy Spirit every time we refer to Holy Spirit. I want you to understand why we do this. It's not semantics, it's clarity. The same reason we can declare Holy Spirit without saying the the, and it's totally fine to say the Holy Spirit, is the same reason we don't say the Jesus. Just as we don't say the Jesus, we don't have to say the Holy Spirit. Totally can, totally fine. Again, not semantics, it's for clarity. Because our understanding of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit shape the nature of the way we interact 
How we understand Holy Spirit shapes the nature by which we interact with Holy Spirit. And Holy Spirit helps us. Holy Spirit is comforter, guide, counselor, advocate, convicts us of sin, teaches, is a witness, intercedes on our behalf. Holy Spirit helps us live as not-so-average Joes. And Barnabas was a not-so-average Joe empowered by the Holy Spirit to be good, godly, and generous. Barnabas was good. He was, he was selfless. He saw what could be in others. He didn't make it about him. He was godly in that he lived by faith. He was willing to risk by faith, empowered by Holy Spirit. And he was generous, not only with his finances, but with his administration of grace. He was willing to give a grace umbrella in lots of scenarios so that people could live into what could be in their lives as not-so-average Joes. He did that empowered by Holy Spirit. And what Barnabas does is he doesn't sit there trying to decide things. He sits trying to discern things. He listens for Holy Spirit to describe what can be. He listens for Holy Spirit to say, where am I supposed to risk and sacrifice? He listens rather than just trying to decide, which is a huge distinction. It allowed him to be faithful. It allowed him to risk. And many people are not trying to discern. They're trying to decide. And in trying to decide, we can end up predetermining what should and shouldn't be. And many people predetermined what could and shouldn't be for Paul. And they end up missing what could be. See, the principle is predetermining preempts our ability to discern. Predetermining preempts our ability to discern. When we predetermine, when we decide ahead of time, even just for ourselves, it inhibits our ability to hear, our ability to listen, to ultimately discern. I mean, and discerning, listen, discerning is not a process of deciding. Discerning is a process of pursuing and listening and seeking. It's about hearing, being in step with Holy Spirit, being dependent upon Holy Spirit. And we aren't positioned to discern if we are already predetermining. We're out of step. And Many people missed what could be in Paul because they predetermined what should be out of fear, out of anger for what he did, out of sorrow for the complexity, but not Barnabas. Barnabas sought by Holy Spirit to listen and discern. So when I get to the point in the story around Barnabas and Paul, I begin to wonder, who do you and I know who needs a Barnabas? Who? Who do you know who needs a Barnabas? Someone who's willing to encourage and not simply criticize. There are far too many people in our world who want to criticize. But we're called to encourage. In fact, anytime Holy Spirit reveals something to us, it's not for criticism. It's for us to be able to intercede and pray. Oswald Chambers has a great quote that says this. God never gives us discernment in order that we may criticize, but that we may intercede. Pray for the person. But far too often, instead of building up, we want to tear down. Instead of encouraging, we criticize. It reminds me of a story of a father and a son who were heading down the road with their donkey in tow behind them. And they came across the first traveler who, said, who just looked at him and said, you guys are foolish. Why in the world are you walking riding your donkey? So they both hopped on the donkey and walked just kind of riding down the road. When they came across another traveler who rebuked them and shamed them for the inhumane treatment of the donkey that they were both riding the donkey. So the son hopped off. As they continued further down the road, they bumped into another traveler who looked at the father and scolded the father for making his son walk, 
shamed him, and they switched roles. Son's now riding, father's walking. Further down the road, they found a fourth traveler who looked at the son and said, how dare you make your father, who's older than you, walk? Shame on you. The last time the father and son were seen, they were heading down the road carrying the donkey. Listen, we're supposed to encourage, not criticize. We're supposed to build up. And when we predetermine, it preempts our ability to discern actually what God wants to do in a space, what Holy Spirit's trying to do in a space. We're to encourage. Be an encourager like Barnabas. Because look, everybody has a reputation. It may have some good pieces, it may have some not so good pieces. Everybody has a reputation. But when a good and godly person sees what can be, despite what was or has been, it creates a space for God to do incredible things. If we would just choose to lean into what can be. See, empowered by Holy Spirit, Barnabas and Paul go on their first trip. They actually go back to Barnabas' native land of Cyprus. And in that journey, what seems like Barnabas starting that whole thing and being the leader, by the time we get to Acts 13, verse 13, what Scripture says in describing what's going on, they say, Paul and his companions. <laughs> what happened to Barnabas at that point? Listen, when we live in a way for what can be in others, and we know that not-so-average living is not and never just about us, that it's about others, then a shift happens. Where they become greater, we become less. When we're doing it right, when we elevate somebody else, they're positioned for more, not us. And that's exactly how Barnabas leaned into the dynamic. So they end up finishing that missionary journey. They go back to Jerusalem. They're, they bring with them a guy named John Mark, who's actually a cousin to Barnabas, who will go on to write the Gospel of Mark. Okay? Again, the ripple of investing in somebody else. They get back. They spend some time there. They end up heading out on another missionary journey. This time, Paul and Barnabas have a, a falling out. They, get, they separate over some issues connected to John Mark. Now, what God does out of that is he uses it for good. He does Roman 8, Romans 8.28. He not only uses it for good, he creates a space for them to later reconcile. But it was an issue around John Mark. And I think part of it was somewhere in that dynamic, some predetermining was happening rather than discerning. Whether God orchestrated or allowed the moment, he ultimately uses it for good, that separation, more mission trips, more impact for the gospel. But predetermining always prompts our ability to discern. And highly likely that was part of the journey. So as we process this into a so what reality, what do we take from this? They understand the Bible calls us to encourage one another. You may be thinking, is this really important? I mean, Sean, I've got work, I've got family, I've got other time commitments. You're, you want me to be a Barnabas to somebody else? Is, is this really important? Yes, it matters. One can make a difference. And I'm going to tell you, we need this in the Quad Cities. Listen, some of you may be aware that a, a recent survey came out about, from the Barna Group that identifies post-Christian cities. And, and post-Christian is a term that identifies a, a community group that is moving beyond a Christian worldview, no longer embracing a Christian worldview as the primary view. They're, they're moving away from embracing the values, practices, and beliefs of Christianity. So this list of most post-Christian cities is not necessarily a good list if you're living out of a posture of following Jesus. But on this list in 2019, the Quad Cities is number 15, one five. The 15th most post-Christian city in America. Now, you can get online, scope this out, see what all the questions were and why that's determined. I don't care. You don't, don't split hairs over what is and isn't about it. Just understand something. 15th most post-Christian city in the nation 
Davenport, Rock Island, Moline, the whole group here. That's discouraging to some degree. It may be disheartening. It may be appalling to you, but I hope it's compelling. I hope you feel stirred to say, this is why it matters we live as not so average Joes. This is why it matters we invest in somebody else. This is why we as a church don't just engage in what happens here on a weekend around four walls, but we actually engage out. We live sent. We build relationships in our cities. We seek the peace and prosperity of our cities in the name of Jesus. It matters. Fifteenth, most post-Christian. Now, as you process that and you're trying to figure out, okay, what do I do with that? I want to understand they did the same survey in 2017. And two years ago in 2017, the Quad Cities was number 50. So in two years, same survey, we've gone from 5-0 to 1-5. Not only do I hope that stirs your heart, breaks your heart and stirs your heart, I hope it compels you to be more intentional in being a not-so-average Joe like Barnabas. It matters. I totally believe God has positioned you personally, us corporately, to see those things change, to be light in darkness, to, to facilitate a return. Listen, being a not-so-average Joe is not about us. It's never just about us. It's about him and his kingdom. It's about others and living into a not-so-average Joe life. So here's where I want to lead you and leave you as we wrap up our Not So Average Joe series. I mean, it, it's around what I see in Barnabas, three things that I think, if we can lean into intentionally, can position us to start to push against a post-Christian paradigm, to push against a, a move away from the things of God to the fullness that we have in Jesus. The first is to recognize that there is always someone who needs encouragement. Always someone who needs encouragement. Barnabas means son of encouragement. And over and over again, that proved to be a very fitting name for him. He believed in Paul when no one else would, before anybody else did. He also endorsed Paul's leadership to others before anybody else would. And he positioned Paul to experience his full potential in Jesus. He made a difference for Paul. He also did the same thing for John Mark. But the truth I want you to hold to is that we are never without someone to encourage. There is always someone who needs your encouragement. And encouragement is one of the easiest ways to come alongside somebody and help them and lift them towards their full potential in Christ. So here's my challenge. Be the first to believe in someone this week. Someone in your world, your family, your workplace, be the first to believe in them and to call them into Christ-likeness, to call them into biblical realities around who they are in Jesus. Be the first to believe in someone. Prayerfully consider what that looks like. And if you're willing to step into encouragement like that, then I want to encourage you to take this next step to simply see the image of God in others. Every person is made in the image of God. They are image bearers. They have inherent worth and value. No matter what their journey has been marked by in brokenness and things that shouldn't be or should have never happened, no matter the brokenness in a journey, there is still purpose and there's still a, a divine opportunity and potential for them. Don't lose sight of that. Don't lose sight of the image of God in people. Barnabas saw what could be in Paul. He didn't just see what was. He saw what actually could be and I wonder who you can do that for. Who has God positioned you to see the image of God in, to see them as he created them, and by encouragement and being alongside and leading them into fullness, you can make a difference. If you're willing to encourage, if you're willing to see the image of God in others, then it positions you to actually step into the third reality, and that is to seek to add value more than to be valued in that paradigm. Seek to add value more than to be valued. 
Barnabas was a catalyst of a great movement of God because he sought to give more than he ever took. It may seem like semantics are small to say, seek to add value more than be valued, but it's huge when we live this out. We actually live for the purpose of something greater than us. Barnabas believed in Paul. He believed in John Mark. He believed in countless others in his ministry, but just take Paul and John Mark. Their ministry in Ripple, so significant, immeasurable eternal Ripple because Barnabas chose to risk and to see what could be. He made a difference as a not-so-average Joe. He believed in both of those guys. So they were able to move forward and God was able to work Romans 8, 28 out of both of their lives. Who are you positioned to be a Barnabas? Who are you positioned to lean into? I, I think Barnabas is more influential in kingdom than we often give him credit. So here's the deal. Be a Barnabas. I dare you, encourage and implore you to be a not-so-average Joe Barnabas. You don't have to have it all figured out. You don't have to be perfect. You just need to be willing to see what can be and to risk in the love and the authority in the name of Jesus under the power of Holy Spirit. It just takes one to change a trajectory. It, it can ha- you can do this if you just step in boldness and authority and power from the Holy Spirit. I realize though for some today, you're sitting here and you recognize you need a Barnabas. You actually need to get right with God first and then you need a Barnabas to come alongside. If that's the deal for you, back of the note guide tells you how to get right with God. And then I encourage you to take communication card, any piece of paper, write down your name and contact information. Say, I need a Barnabas. Tear that thing off, throw it in the offering bucket that'll pass by a little bit later, give it to a leader at your campus, declare you need a Barnabas. We wanna connect you into a relationship that'll lead you into the fullness like Paul had the opportunity to do. That's not about being needy or weak, that's about living into full potential. God did that through Barnabas for Paul. He wants to do it through you, so through a Barnabas here, a Barnabas in our cities. Be willing to take that step, but then be willing to be the one investing in somebody else's life. Take that step of faith and risk. It only takes one to add value to another. It is risky. The danger is that our investments may not work out the way we think and that people get to choose what we do around all that. It doesn't matter. God invites us to step into obedience and it's always worth the risk. So take the risk. Asking yourself, where are you willing to risk to make a difference for God in the life of somebody else? It might be in an area of finance where you you sacrifice financially to see something else happen like Barnabas did. And maybe you forfeit your own comfort. Maybe you leverage your reputation for somebody else's reputation. Or maybe you leverage the relationship for the relationship itself to be better. Where are you willing to sacrifice and make a difference for God in the life of somebody else? It only takes one. Only takes one. Paul. Paul ends up becoming a not-so-average Joe. And living out the example of Barnabas as a good, godly, and generous man. Because Barnabas was willing to risk and willing to see what can be. And so can you. Step in boldness in a process of discerning from Holy Spirit. Not predetermining, but listening. You know, Paul, because he experienced this through Barnabas, would go on to write 13 books of the Bible, and one of the things he would write is found in 2 Corinthians 13. It says, finally, brothers and sisters, rejoice. 
strive for full restoration for a not-so-average life. Encourage one another. Be of one mind, live in peace, and the God of love and peace will be with you. Who are you positioned to be a Barnabas for? To encourage, see the image of God in, and to add value. As you process and reflect on that, we're gonna step back into worship through song and through the sacrament of communion. As we engage in those things, I encourage you to reflect on where God's calling you to be good, godly, and generous in the power of Holy Spirit so that you can offer encouragement, you can see the image of God, and you can add value that has an immeasurable ripple into eternity. You can do this in his power. He's positioned you for it if you're willing to take that next step of courage. Ask him to give you the faith to do it. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, I thank you that you are not only a God of love who through your son made a way for us to be reconciled to you. You are a God who imparts your spirit to empower us. Lord, I pray that Holy Spirit right now across our network would continue to speak and lead so that all of us can see what can be. So that all of us realize that it's not just about us, but that you're calling us into spaces not to criticize, but to encourage. You're calling us into spaces to see the image of God in people where others aren't willing or able to see it. And you're calling us to add value for your glory, not just add value to make us valuable. So in these next few moments as we process the truth of your word out of the life of Barnabas and Paul, I pray that each one of us would have the wisdom and courage from Holy Spirit to be not-so-average Joes living not-so-average lives. Good, godly, and generous for your glory. So continue to speak and lead. We wait to hear from you. I pray all these things in the name of Jesus. And everybody said, amen.